What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. We are here for you to get those questions answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us today in Germany, I think we're up to the G's now, then you'll want to dial one 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery, our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Ace McKay is handling social media for us today. If you are uh, listening to us uh, via YouTube or Facebook, well, just put that question of yours in the comments box. Ace will see that. He'll say, Aha, hark. Gadzooks and all that, and then he'll send it to us here in Studio One, and we'll hopefully get the job done for you. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, Tom. How are you today? I'm very well. you got your headphones now. Yeah, I thought for a second we were going to have to do live radio call-in show without headphones. Well, I'm going to have to take the hit for that because I borrowed those headphones when I was producing yesterday in the booth, but everything is back to normal now. We've got the headphones back. I have the most delightful question for you. Oh, Th- like this is from questions. a five-year-old. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Tanner says, Dr. Anders, my five-year-old daughter, Amelia, wanted to know if I could ask the podcast man, that's you, this question. After we're done being in heaven and Jesus gives us our bodies back, will we still have birthdays? Thank you, Tanner. That's isn't a that, great. That, that is a great question. It's awesome that's from a, a five-year-old. That's a great question. So you know, we mark our birthdays by the the, the sequence of the years, right? As yes. A, you know, we know how the calendar works. The yes. Earth turns around the sun and so forth. I don't have a clue <laughs> what the cosmology of the new heavens and the new earth will be. Hmm. I don't know if we'll have a 365 and one-fourth day solar year. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll have seasons. Um, I have no idea. I, I think it's entirely plausible that we'll, can, that we'll, we'll have a calendar that you could mark off dates. Yeah. Um, but I, perhaps we won't. I have no clue. But uh, she gets she gets points for coming up with a great question. Yeah, but but maybe for a five year old, the right answer would be every day will be a birthday celebration. Oh, I like that a lot. Hey, thanks so much, uh, Mom, for uh, sending us that question. Here's one now from Stan in Springfield, Virginia. If Moses can said to be a typology for Jesus, what does Dr. Anders think of the following? The Exodus from Egypt might allegorically be seen as our birth or rebirth into Christianity, but then the wandering in the desert represents the many complexities of life, and our individual journeys can take 40 years or a lifetime and sometimes feel um, aimless 
even despite God's grace and our prayers for faith and hope. Thanks, Stan in Springfield, Virginia. Stan, I, I commend you for your analysis. Unfortunately, the fathers of the church beat you to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right? And so the Exodus has long been considered a kind of allegory of the Christian life. Uh-huh. And uh, if you want a, a really classic explication of that theme, please read St. Gregory of Nyssa, his life of Moses does exactly what you just suggested. So okay. it's an allegorical reading of Moses and the Exodus event for, as a metaphor, as an allegory for the Christian life. Oh, very good. Stan in Springfield, Virginia, thanks so much for your question. Here's one now from Beth. Thanks for your show. I've learned a lot from listening. Can you help me to understand Matthew 17, specifically verses 10 through 13? From what I read, John the Baptist was the new Elijah. I don't understand this. Thanks in advance for your clarification, Beth. Um, yeah, thank you. So, uh, what Christ says about John the Baptist is that he came in the in the spirit and power of Elijah, and yeah. so he is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that before the coming day of the Lord, the prophet, prophet Elijah would come. And what we know from Christ is that that does not mean the literal prophet Elijah, but someone in the spirit. A sort of a type of an Elijah, which okay. happens to have been John the Baptist. Okay, very good. Beth, thanks so much for your question. Here's an interesting one from Tony. Any observations or comment on things I should keep in mind when reading The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So it's been a while, it's been a long time since I read The Problem of Pain. Um, and so I'm going to have a little bit of trouble giving you some specifics. Uh, but generally speaking, I would like you to kind of back up and understand something about Lewis's worldview and how he how he thinks. Lewis is operating very much within uh, the context of, of of classic philosophical Christianity, informed by uh, classical philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, and the like. And so he he thinks in terms of rationality and human flourishing and eudaimonia. That is to say, you know, what is the what is the good kind of life for a human person to live? Um, he, he thinks a lot about, you know, the intelligibility of the faith. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but, of course, what he's offering is a theodicy. He's offering an explanation for God and a justification of Christianity in light of the fact that humans suffer pain. Okay. Well, very good. And thank you so much for that question. And we'll uh, take this one right up to the break. This is from Madison. Dr. Anders, were the Cathars of the Middle Ages Christians? And do you have any books you could recommend about the Cathar movement? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So it, it all depends on your definition, right? Depends on your definition. If If you consider the word Christian to mean someone who makes a conscious decision to follow Christ as they understand him to uh-huh. be, uh-huh. then uh, then by definition, anyone that proposes a religious way of life that's oriented in some fashion towards the name of Christ, we could broadly conceive of as Christian. Uh, but, the, but the Catholic religion was nothing like any kind of Christian orthodoxy mm. or mainstream Christianity that you know. It's uh-huh. totally unlike Catholicism, totally unlike orthodoxy and... While there are some superficial similarities to elements of Protestantism, it's very unlike Protestantism. Um, There is a social history of 
uh, the Cathar movement called Montayu. I'll give you the full title after the break. Sounds good. So uh, sit tight. We'll continue on that on the other side of the break. We'll also talk with Leslie in North Texas and hopefully you as well at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion on EWTN. It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews or perhaps uh, just tell us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. In any event, the phone number is the same, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. So before the break, we were uh, answering a question from Madison who said, uh, we're the Cathars of the Middle Ages Christians, and do you have any books you could recommend about the Cathar movement? During the break, I mentioned to David, I said, I've never heard of the Cathars. But then he said, oh, it's the Albigensians. Now, them I've heard of. Yes, so... Uh, Before the break, I said the Cathars or the Albigensians were Christians only in the broadest sense of the term in that they they acknowledged the person of Jesus having something to do with their religious belief system. Uh But in terms Uh of having any kind of um, alliance with with, uh, Orthodox, conciliar, confessional Christianity, whether Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, you name it, Mm -hmm. they'd be way outside the mainstream. If you had a Cathar community today, we would clearly consider them a cult or a sect and not, you know, sort of part of the mainstream Christian movement. Um, In terms of uh, books about uh, Catharism or Albigensianism, probably the classic work here, and I love this guy's name. His name is a mouthful to say. It's a French scholar from the Annals School, Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's L E R O Y L A D U R I E. Emmanuel okay. Leroy. Ah, see, I'm going to get tongue tied doing it. <laughs> Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie is his name. All right. And the title of the book has been translated into English uh, and uh, published under two different titles. One of them is Montaillou, and that's M O N T A I L L O U. Montaillou, The Promised Land of Error. Uh, and the other one is Montaillou, Cathars and Catholics in a French village, 1294 to 1324. Mm. And what this book is, is a, it's a social history, an oral history of what daily life and faith was like for the people in this Cathar community in, uh, in 13th and early 14th century France. Fascinating. It was a famous book. It sold over a quarter million copies when really? it came out. And, and most sort of academic tomes on social history... Uh, you know, they're not they're not bestseller-type books, but this one really had a smash hit. How about that? Madison, thanks so much uh, for your email. If you'd like to send us uh, an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. I'll give you that phone number one more time, and uh, that is 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- We'll get to the phones in just a second here. Brand new book now available from EWTN Publishing, Standing Strong, Good Discipline Makes Great Teens by Dr. Ray Garendi. Dr. Ray gives parents the tools they need not only to navigate the teen years, but also to enjoy them by unpacking issues ranging from sibling relationships, peer pressure, curfews, chores to overcoming backtalk, teaching your kids to avoid drugs. This book has got it all. Imagine this, three techniques for becoming a calmer parent. 
Turn that temperature down a little bit. And what about this one? Five ways to monitor your child's use of technology. And it's only going to get more complicated as we continue on. Again, the book, Standing Strong, Good Discipline Makes Great Teens by Dr. Ray Garendi. It's available right now from EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Leslie in North Texas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey, Leslie, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Hello, Tom. Hi there. Indulgences. I don't know anything about them except a little bit from Middle Age history about indulgences and Luther's objections to them, and also enough to know there has been scandal associated with them. And I'm in RCIA, and I wouldn't let that stop me from becoming Catholic, but can you give me some light about the history and the foundation and the current state with indulgences? Sure, absolutely. Nothing I'd rather do. I really appreciate the question. So the practice of indulgences began in the Catholic Church in the middle of the 3rd century, around the year 250. And it was something that was born spontaneously in the heart of the Christian faithful. It was not something that was proposed or imposed by the Catholic hierarchy. And so the caricature of indulgences is this is something that the hierarchy used to fleece the laity. Mm. In fact, they came into existence in almost the opposite way. And let me explain how that was. So in Christian antiquity, the practice of confession and absolution, penance, the sacrament of penance, was not celebrated privately the way it is today. You didn't go in a box and close the door and whisper your confession privately in the priest's ear. Uh, the absolution of sins was granted in a public context, and the penance that penitents did was also very public. And typically, the sacrament was only—one had recourse to the sacrament for only uh, sort of very gross public and scandalous sins. Classically, murder, adultery, and apostasy would have wow. been sort of live contenders for, <laughs> for invoking the, the sacrament of, of penance and, and absolution. But when penances were imposed— they were typically things like uh, having to sit at the back of the church and refrain from Holy Communion for a lengthy period of time, uh, perhaps even years. Wow. And, and the, the penances were so long that the Council of Nicaea in 325, when it published its canons, uh, reminded bishops that they had to readmit penitents to Holy Communion before they died. Right, they have to be able to have viaticum, so you can't impose a penance that lasts until their death. Mm. Which means that some people were doing that; they were really kicking them out for a long time. And uh, and so, in the 250s, there was a persecution of the church, particularly in North Africa, under the Roman Emperor Decian. This we call the Decian Odysseus. It was the Decian persecution. And uh, as in most persecutions, there were a number of people who were <coughs> martyred. Uh, some were imprisoned. And some, of course, uh, gave it all up under persecution and renounced the faith under threat of torture or imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that were imprisoned, not killed, but had held on to the faith, uh, were known as confessors rather than martyrs. And many times they continued to languish in, in Roman prisons, in North African prisons. The folks that apostatized would be kicked out of the church for this grave sin of apostasy, and admitted only on condition of performing a lengthy penance. Now, while they were sitting there performing their penances, some of these people that were subject to the church's discipline 
got the idea, you know, we got these confessors over here that are in Roman prisons. They're in state prisons, and they're just, you know, languishing away and acquiring all kinds of merit because they've testified to Christ, and we admire them, and they're, you know, yay, go them. I wonder if the bishop would be willing to swap out some of their merit for my demerit and cut the time off of my penance. And so they would go visit the souls in prison. They would go visit the confessors in prison and say, would you write a writ of indulgence telling the bishop that you would be willing to substitute the penance that you're doing, you know, that was imposed by the state for confessing Christ, on my behalf, so he'll cut down on my penance. And many of the confessors did that. They would write a document and say, I, you know, I, you know, I don't know, Cesarius, hereby substitute, you know, this much time of my penance on behalf of, uh, you know, Tom over here who's doing, who's doing penance, and then take that to the bishop. The bishop in Carthage at the time was Cyprian, uh, Bishop Zip, St. Cyprian of Carthage. And he saw this and he said, you know what, actually the logic of this works because within the Catholic Church, we have this doctrine that we all bear one another's burdens. St. Paul said in Colossians, I fill up on my own flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the Church, as if the sufferings of Paul somehow could avail for the salvation of others. Mm. And he says, well, that's actually good theology. The only problem is that the jurisdiction, the decision here, needs to lie with the bishop, not with the penitent and the confessors themselves. So, But the idea that the Church could appeal to the merits of the martyrs, the merits of the saints, the uh-huh. merits of the sovereign, on behalf of sinners, is law, is, is, makes sense. And, uh, and, you know, you ought to have some token of repentance, you know, to qualify for this. And so, you know, here, say a prayer. Here, go do a good work or whatnot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they would attach some pious practice to it. And, that, but in, and in virtue of that, they would cut down the temporal punishment that was due to sin. Well, two developments happened in the practice of indulgences in the Middle Ages. One was that, well, if the logic works for temporal penances imposed by the Church, does it also count for temporal penances imposed by God? And, of course, the way that God imposes temporal penances is through purgatory. That's one of the ways that he does it. So could you apply the merits of the saints on behalf of the souls in purgatory? And again, the logic is sound. It's a biblical logic. So the Church said, well, yeah. And here's the other development— uh, one of the things, and this is where the, the abuses came in, uh-huh. one of the good works that is constantly, constantly exhorted in sacred scripture, and as a good work that can atone for sin, is giving alms. I mean, Tobit says that explicitly. If you give alms, you will atone for sin. And so, okay, you know, go say these prayers, uh, do this pious work, or, or give alms to the poor. And Well, that's fine. Um, but then, you know, someone in the church got the great idea, well, if you're going to give alms to the poor, could you give alms to the church? And then that's, of course, where the corruption came sure, out. Right? Sure, sure. And so that's that eventually got out of hand, and and reformers before Luther said, you know, we got to stop this uh, giving alms business as a penance because it's being exploited by the hierarchy or unscrupulous priests. And so yeah. they did put it into it. But the underlying logic of indulgences has nothing to do with manipulation of the laity uh, by the clergy. That was a medieval development that was late medieval development that was in abuse. It has to do with this spontaneous awareness that we bear one another's burdens in the church and that the righteous can pray and intercede and merit on behalf of the less righteous, which is a biblical principle that exists from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah. Leslie, is that helpful for you? Very. Good. And so now when they say, hey, you get an indulgence for doing, I can't remember, the church has said a few 
in the past year or two that I've been doing RCIA. What is that? Yeah, thing? so what, what that is, is if you perform the, the pious good work that's asked of you, the Church is appealing to God through the merits of the saints on your behalf that whatever temporal punishment is due to sin in your case uh, would be remitted or reduced. Now, what we can't do is assign some kind of mathematical proportionality with absolute certainty that says, okay, if Leslie does, you know, this prayer, we can guarantee that she'll get, you know, nine months off of purgatory. We can't do that. And and some indulgences have a length of time assigned to them, but it should not be understood as a length of time off in purgatory. The origin of that was from the actual penances imposed by the Church. If the, uh. if the Church had said, you have to do penance for, you know, a year and a half— but if you do this indulgence, we'll cut that down by nine months. Mm-hmm. That's where those terms come from, right? But today, you know, we obviously we've had uh, uh, we've had serious indulgence inflation, you know, over the over the centuries, and so now it's so easy to get a plenary indulgence, which is the remission of all temporal punishment due to sin, that people are like, huh, "What do I want a nine month indulgence for? I can go <laughs> get me a plenary indulgence for praying the rosary." So I'm not going to mess with these minor indulgences. Um, and uh, but that's what it is now. You know, if you if you perform the good work in uh, in expectation of a plenary indulgence, one of the conditions for receiving the full remission of all temporal punishment due to sin is that we have no attachment to sin. And of course, that's a that is an interior disposition that one has to have. Yeah. It's very difficult or impossible to gauge in one's own case. It means God has to be the judge of that. So we can't ever know for sure that one has received the full benefit of an indulgence. Um, but one does definitely receive a benefit, and I, I have acquired indulgences. I will continue to do so in the future. My two favorite indulgences that I ever acquired. Yes. Uh, I uh, I, w- I visited Assisi, uh, uh, the home of Saint Francis. Yeah. And there was a plenary indulgence offered for visiting one of the shrines, I think. And so I I did that, and I and I wanted it to be applied on behalf of the soul of the father of a friend of mine. And I remember I wrote him and said, no, I've got this plenary indulgence that we're, we're going to get that for your dad who just passed. And wow. that, he, he said that was so meaningful to him, he, knowing that I was there in Assisi. He really appreciated Beautiful. that. Beautiful. The other one was during the year of faith, Pope Benedict granted a plenary indulgence to anyone that would visit the place of their baptism. I was baptized in a Presbyterian church, <laughs> later converted to a kind of non-denominational Baptist church, where the idea of gaining an indulgence was, let us say, uh, would not have been well received, okay? <laughs> but I said, by golly, I'm going to get this indulgence, right? So I, I went to, um, I'll just go ahead and tell you, it was Mountain Brook Community Church that would, had previously been Broadwood Presbyterian Church, wow. PCA, you know? Wow. And I, I wander into the sanctuary, sit down right at the site of my baptism, and I'm sitting there making my pious prayers, and somebody <laughs> says, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, well, well you, you, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. <laughs> That is fantastic. Leslie, thanks so much for your call. We hope that your RCA journey is very fruitful. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Jeannie's driving through uh, Louisiana listening to us on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jeannie, what's on your mind today? Yes, hello. Hi, Dr. Anders. So I have a question about the book of Revelation. I just finished up uh, with the uh, Bible in a year with with Father Mike. And in chapter two, it brings up a couple of times uh, of a group called the Nicolaitans. So in chapter two, uh, where he's talking to the church in Ephesus, 
he's he's uh, commending them on one hand, but then he does say that um, uh, yet this you have on in verse six you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then in speaking to the church in Pergamum, verse fifteen of chapter two um, says, so you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. So maybe could you explain who this group was and what they what they taught and what their works were? Um, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, so we, we don't really know. We don't really know who the Nicolaitans were, but there is some speculation that they were an early antinomian group. Uh, antinomianism is the doctrine that you do not have to adhere to any law. Uh, in your Christian life. So it's a kind of, you know, radical, immoralist position. And so there's some speculation they may have been antinomian. Jeannie, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, we'll talk with Sarah from St. Petersburg, Florida. A couple lines open for you. Grab one at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-3986. All right, let's go to uh, Sarah, a first-time caller from St. Petersburg, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hi, Sarah, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. I was wondering if you could help me understand the difference between um, Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic, and can they receive the sacraments in our church, and can we in theirs? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the, the biggest difference between Greek Orthodoxy and Catholicism, the biggest difference, is that the Greek Orthodox reject the universal jurisdiction of the Pope. Right, so the Catholic belief is that the Bishop of Rome is also the Vicar of Christ on Earth and that he has universal jurisdiction over the entire Christian world. The Orthodox typically admit that the Bishop of Rome has a kind of primacy historically, that he is sort of the, 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 the best, tallest, highest, most eminent bishop in the world, and they acknowledge that in antiquity he had an important role to play, particularly in adjudicating disputes when something would be, you know, brought to the papacy as a kind of court of final appeal. They will acknowledge that, but they would deny that he had a kind of independent jurisdiction over the whole world. So, if you know if somebody didn't appeal a case to Rome, uh, the Orthodox would hold the position that uh, Rome had no business intervening. Right. Mm. So that's they they want an independency, independent from papacy in that regard. Um, that's the biggest difference. That's the biggest difference. There are some others. Um, the uh, uh, the Catholic Church has a fairly robust doctrine of the afterlife, right, that includes the doctrine of purgatory. The Orthodox Church definitely believes that there is an afterlife in which prayers for the dead can be efficacious, uh, so they do pray for the dead, uh, but they're less specific on precisely what happens there, and so they don't they don't like the definition of the dogma of purgatory as mm. such. Um, we both admit that Mary uh, does not have any son, that she's all holy and all pure, and that she's the Theotokos, the mother of God, and who prays and intercedes for the Church. Um, but the Orthodox don't like to talk about that doctrine in terms of an immaculate conception. So the Catholic belief is that Mary was preserved from every stain of original sin. Orthodox don't believe in original sin. 
they don't have a doctrine of original sin as such. And so the, to, to describe Mary's purity in those terms is kind of outside of their theological wheelhouse. And there, there's some other differences. They, we differences in the way we celebrate Holy Communion. Uh-huh. Um, in the Middle Ages, they even got bent out of shape about the fact that Latin priests would shave. You know, so I mean, but the big really? one, yeah. And then, uh, of course, I have to mention the filioque, uh, which is the article in the Creed that states uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And for historical reasons, the Orthodox uh, got pretty upset about the the phrase and the son being inserted into the creed, mm. sp- particularly in that it happened outside of an ecumenical council. So, uh, But the big one, again, is the differences uh, over the jurisdiction of the pope. And most of the other differences um, would—see, um, we have Eastern Rite Catholics. We have Catholics that celebrate the liturgy just like the Orthodox do, using the very same words, the uh-huh. liturgy of St. Grand Chrysostom. Catholics in the East will do that. We have Catholics whose theological patrimony is much more aligned— to orthodoxy in the way they would express themselves. We have Catholics in the East that don't say the filioque when they say the creed, you know. So, like, if you superficially care, uh, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, 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 cosmetically, if you will, that's the word. If you were to walk into an Eastern Rite Catholic church, you might not at first recognize that it was Catholic as opposed to Orthodox because really? there'd be so many sort of visual similarities and, and gestures and ritual similarities. Uh-huh. What really boils down to the where the rubber hits the road is this question of the Pope. Now, can the Orthodox receive communion in the Catholic Church and vice versa? That's interesting. There's an asymmetrical relationship here. So the Catholic Church does say that Orthodox can receive sacraments in the Catholic Church with some caveats, with some caveats, but yes, they can with some caveats. Um, but the Orthodox don't return the favor. Don't return the favor. So if a Catholic presented himself for communion in an Orthodox church, he would be he would be sent away. Now, interestingly, the Catholic Church also tells the Catholic faithful, don't go present yourself for communion in an Orthodox church because they're not in communion. Mm-hmm. And see, communion is a witness to the Catholicity of the church, to the unity of the church, and by going to communion, I'm saying, this is the church that Christ founded. This is where I want to plant my flag, so to speak. That helps explain why Catholics would permit Orthodox to come to communion. Mm-hmm. Because, see, we see them as very, very close cousins, you know, pretty much the same church that just kind of fell into a dispute in the 11th century. And so when, when Orthodox people come to communion in a Catholic church, they're just expressing that Catholic unity that we think already exists. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, but to justify that split... The Orthodox have to make the case that Latins are wrong about a lot of things. Hence, well, you can't come to communion in our church. Fascinating. Wow. There you go, Sarah. Hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call today from St. Petersburg. Call to communion on EWTN. couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Kimberly's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Kimberly says... Can Dr. Andrews speak on the Waldensians? I've heard them referred to as early Anabaptists. From what I've read on their beliefs, they do seem in agreement with Baptists today. Is this the case? No, not the case. Um, so, well, it depends. If you talk about contemporary Waldensians, uh-huh. they are different from the medieval Waldensians. All right. And now, if you if you were to walk into, say, the Waldensian church in Rome, and there is one today, right? Uh, you would find something that was that looked a lot more like Protestantism today. Waldensianism as a movement was influenced by the Protestant Reformation. But if you look at the original Waldensians for their first, say, 300-year history, uh-huh. uh, from the end of the 12th century up to the Reformation, 
their beliefs would not have aligned with mainstream Protestantism. Uh, in particular, there's no evidence that the Waldensians ever accepted the Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith alone until Luther taught it to them. So the classic Waldensian doctrine of salvation would have been much more moralistic than Luther uh. would have allowed for. Um, Peter Waldo was a wealthy merchant in Lyon in France at the end of the 12th century who advocated uh, apostolic poverty and lay preaching. And, uh, uh, and, and at first, the church didn't quite know what to do with the Waldensians, but when they began to emphasize the preaching of the, and the teaching of laity as opposed to priests, uh, the church woke up and took notice and subjected some Waldensians to theological examination to see if they were competent to present the doctrine of the church, and they weren't. They, they failed rather miserably, and so the pope said, well, sorry, uh, you know, you can live apostolic poverty all day long, but you can't preach. At that point, the Waldensians said, well, that's more important to us than unity with the church, and they broke away and became a heretical sect, wow. right? Um, and many of them were reconciled to the church throughout the centuries. But that's the origin of the thing. Now, that movement, that movement to apostolic poverty and sort of radical way of life as a contradiction to the growing money economy in Europe in the 12th century mm -hmm. and the corruption of the clergy and the hierarchy was not something that was limited to the Waldensian movement. In fact, the most famous uh, proponents of that way of life were, in fact, Catholics. Francis of Assisi uh, was an almost exact contemporary of Peter Waldo. He advocated almost the exact same thing, which is why when Innocent III first learned about Francis of Assisi, he said, oh, boy, I've seen this before. <laughs> and his initial inclination was, was to disallow, not to approve the Franciscan way of life, because he said, well, this is just Waldensianism all over again. And then Francis proved, and, and supposedly God indicated to Innocent through a dream that Francis was not Peter Waldo, but was in fact the means that God was going to use to reform the church in the late Middle Ages. And so uh, Innocent III, in a brilliant uh, strategic move, following the lifelong principle of the, the age-old principle is, if you can't beat them, join them, <laughs> said, well, we're going we're gonna to baptize this apostolic poverty movement and turn it into something the church can can benefit from, and thus mm. were born the Franciscan Reform, and then, then the Dominican Reform, and then all the mendicant orders that came into existence. Wow. Um, there is a great book, uh, two, go two good books on this period of history and, and the social situation. One is by Lester Little, and it's called The Poverty Movement of the Middle Ages, and it's about this move to apostolic poverty. The other one is by Herbert Grundmann, and the title of the book is The Religious Movement of the Middle Ages. And it deals with the Waldensians and the Franciscans and many other heretical groups all sort of uh, popped up at this time and, and advocated more or less radical visions of reform, all of which preceded Luther by, you know, 300 years. Fascinating. Really is. Uh, Kimberly, thanks so much for your uh, question today via YouTube. Glad that you're watching us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Last call for your call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Wallace in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I'm hoping you can help me with something. I grew up accustomed to hearing evangelical Protestants saying things like, quote, we suffer because we deserve it, and hell is our default destination. Well, I never found this viewpoint to square with Catholic teaching, yet lately I've encountered Catholics saying the same thing, and it strikes me as the result of poor catechesis. My understanding of the catechism of the Catholic Church is that for damnation to even be possible, one has to willfully turn away from God and persist in such a state. Essentially, God wishes that all should be saved and gives us the means to do that by becoming partakers of the divine nature.
nature through Christ. Now, I understand that we have a broken, fallen nature and have a propensity to do bad things, but to imply that we're inherently evil and deserving of eternal torment almost seems like an insult to a God who is love. Am I off the mark here? Thanks for all you do. Wallace in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Yeah, thanks. So you're onto something, and what's at stake here are two divergent <clears throat> understandings of original sin. Okay. And the the classic Protestant position on original sin, and there are exceptions to this, but I'm thinking here of the, your Lutherans and your Calvinists and your classical Anglians, uh, is that original sin is conceived of as a kind of infection that pervades the soul and makes the soul to be intrinsically hateful to God. So just in virtue of being alive, the soul infected by this disease called original sin merits God's wrath. There was a Puritan preacher, might have been Thomas Hooker. I remember reading this decades ago, and I've forgotten the source, but I think it might be the Puritan preacher Thomas Hooker, uh, who said if we dropped from our mother's womb into hell and were there roaring, it would be just. Wow. And uh, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, uh, echoes this sentiment in the Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God when he says that as vile and loathsome is the most loathsome serpent in your eyes, so are you to God. Ooh. Right? And it's that idea that original sin is a kind of corruption of our very nature that makes us intrinsically hateful to God, that it is, in fact, imputable to the individual soul as guilt. Even though one has no personal agency in original sin, uh -huh. it has the character of actual sin in one's life. And it pervades everything you do, right? That's the other aspect of the classic Protestant view, is that original sin is like ink dispersed through a glass of water. Even a drop renders the whole thing black and, and, uh, and, and impenetrable. Uh -huh. So original sin pervades the soul and every part of it, so that everything you do, even Mother Teresa pulling uh, dying people off the streets of Calcutta, is intrinsically hateful to God in virtue of having been performed by this uh, execrable sinner. That's the classic Protestant view. Uh, the Catholic view is very different. The Catholic, Catholic, the Catholic view is that original sin is not a kind of infection pervading the soul and everything in it, making it intrinsically hateful to God. It is a privation. It's the lack of something. It's not an infection in the soul. It's the absence of sanctifying grace. And it's not imputable to the soul as personal guilt. It's not actual sin. So God doesn't look at the soul and say, you have original sin on your soul? Yuck, I hate you. He doesn't do that, right? Um, now, it's accompanied by, the, by wounds that make virtue difficult for us, all but impossible apart from grace, but does not intrinsically merit damnation. All right, so that's, that's the difference. That's the difference. Now, as far as our actual state is concerned, the Catholic position would be that in our state of actual sin, because we've chosen to say we do deserve hell, and, and, uh, and that, that, judgment, that, justice, that judgment would be just against us, but, of course, God has provided a remedy and offered grace sufficient to salvation to every man, woman, and child that will ever be born. All right. Thanks so much, uh, and appreciate your question today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Hey, this weekend, be sure to join us for The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Always a fascinating program as Michael uh, delves into the mysteries of the Catholic faith. There's a lot to unpack each and every week. You can check it out Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern and again at 7 p.m. Eastern time only on EWTN Radio. It's The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill, a fantastic program. A question from uh, John, not too far away from us, Cullman, Alabama. John says, is there a proper rubric for the Novus Ordo Mass for the priest to always face the parishioners 
or can he face the tabernacle? Thanks. Love your show. Best regards, John and Cullman. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so the uh, question of liturgical law, not my specialty. Not my specialty. Got it. Um, uh, I, I don't think, but again, like I, I don't say Mass, so mm. I'm, I'm not, I don't have to familiarize myself with all the rubrics for the priest in the, in the, in, uh, in the general instruction for the Roman Missal. But I think there's nothing in the Missal itself that would prevent celebrating the liturgy ad orientum. Now, there, there can be specific instruction from the bishop uh, that says, you know, we're not going to do that in our diocese. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so generally speaking, priests who celebrate the new order of the Mass don't celebrate it ad orientum. And, most, and I think the Holy See now says you, you can't do that. I'm not sure about that. I'm pretty sure they say that you can't, but it's not. I don't know that it's in the germ itself. It's been accompanying instructions. Mm. But, you know, you priests that listen, uh, who, who do this and are sort of bound up in the germ, germ is the abbreviation for general instruction on the Roman Missal. Yeah, let me know, because. but I'm pretty sure there's nothing in the Missal itself that says you can't, but you can't. There you go. Appreciate that, John. We hope that's helpful for you. Thanks for listening to us in Coleman. Here's one now from Donna in Miami. According to a book called Religions in America, it clearly states that the Unitarian sect denies the doctrine or dogma of the virgin birth. Can you explain why? I'd like to know. Thanks, Donna in Miami. Yeah, right. Well, so most contemporary Unitarians would, of course, deny uh, the, the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. I mean, that That's really the biggie there, and they, of course, deny the doctrine of the Trinity. So um, uh, the virgin birth is kind of downstream from those. Right. If you're not, if you're going to deny the Trinity and the divinity of Christ, I mean, what do you need a virgin birth for? Oh, well, yeah. You, you know, I mean, that, that that's that, that's really almost trivial in comparison. Not trivial, but I mean, it's definitely lower down the hierarchy of truths. Uh, as a practical matter, most modern Unitarians would be distinctly non-supernaturalist in their understanding of the Christian faith or religion, and and uh, uh, you know, more or less reducible to a kind of uh, uh, benign humanism. Okay. Appreciate that, and thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one from Kenny from Gonzales, Louisiana. He says, I'm a cradle Catholic. My brother left the Catholic Church some 20 years ago. We were having breakfast the other morning, and I said grace before the meal. Then I noticed he did not make the sign of the cross. I asked him why he doesn't make the sign of the cross. He was shocked and recoiled, saying that's his preference or whatever. I'm 62. He's 63. He now says he's non-denominational. Could you elaborate a little more on the origin of the sign of the cross? Thanks, Kenny. Thanks, Kenny. So our earliest reference to the sign of the cross in history is in the early Christian writer Tertullian, who writes in the second century and mentions that it is a practice that he has of apostolic origin. So he makes the assertion that it comes from the apostles. Did it come from the apostles? We don't know. I mean, Tertullian said that it did. We have one early witness claiming it's of apostolic origin. It was clearly very early, and it was something that Tertullian received from tradition. He didn't make it up. Um, but, uh, but of course, that, that's it. That's the, that's the extent of our testimony. Yeah. We, we know from you know, other liturgical manuals and so forth that it is very widespread and very, very early, and even second-century witnesses received it as something that they believe to be apostolic in its origin. So very, very, very early, very, very early. Um, that's about all we know. Now, obviously, the, the significance of it is, you know, we, God speaks sign language. Basically, we can make a gesture with our body that invokes the Blessed Trinity, and what a good thing that is. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally love the sign of the cross. It's probably—it is a prayer. It is a prayer by way of gesture, and I'd say it, it might be the prayer that I pray the most. I make it all the time. I love it, too. And I, I really enjoy— uh, 
doing that prayer, uh, as my wife Adrienne does, in a public setting, like a restaurant. Just you oh, know, sure. get out there and, and be that Catholic. Uh, you know you know who I'm talking about. I have a friend, you have him too, who's a church musician. Oh, yes. And uh, he became Catholic years and years ago, but uh, he, you know, musicians have to get work where they can find it. Sure. He was playing music in a... Uh, um, in a non-Catholic church, and at a at a reverent moment in their liturgy, he made the sign of the cross, just kind of out of a habit as <laughs> yeah, a Catholic. Yeah. And he said, a parishioner came up to him afterwards and said, that was so beautiful, do that again. Oh. <laughs> and what is that you're doing? Oh, that's cool, I like that, let me see more of that. That is awesome. Uh, Cal is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Cal says, can Dr. Andrews please address cultural Catholics, who I know so many of, meaning the people who attend church, go through the motions, and yet often they don't understand, they don't themselves believe in the supernatural and even God. Uh, can you address cultural Catholics? Um, hello, cultural Catholics. I'm addressing you. No, <laughs> Thank no, that's you. That's not what you meant, right? Exactly. Oh, sure. There's lots of these, of course, to be sure. Uh, and uh, the New Testament speaks about people that have the form of religion and deny its power, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a, it's something that's been in religious practice for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that every religious tradition, Catholic, non-Catholic, Christian, non-Christian, has uh, has this division into, uh, you know, people that are serious adherents and those that are nominal adherents only. That's, that's a sort of common sociological phenomenon. And... Uh, you know, I don't think it's that hard to understand why. I mean, if if you're if you're brought up within the church in a form of practice where you are taught, you're conditioned to not take it seriously as uh -huh. as divine revelation and supernatural salvation. Well, then that's what you're going to be habituated to, right? And it and really it takes confrontation. I find with an extraordinary personality to present the faith to you as livable. Mm -hmm. And and for many people, their experience of the Christian faith, Catholic or not, is just nominal, and, and then they have an encounter. They have an encounter with some individual in whom Christ is a living power yeah. uh, that really animates and directs their lives. And, and if that person's life is, is overcoming, is compelling, uh, then the nominal believer says, well, that's a that's a point of view I never had before. Yeah. How interesting is that? And, of course, existential crises and life transitions can prompt deeper questions. Of, you know, who am I? What's the meaning of my life? And what does God have to do with it? I mean, I remember I was not nominal by any stretch of the imagination, but I was not good, <laughs> you know, yeah. when I was growing up as a kid. I mean, religion was very much a part of our identity as a family, and I consider myself a deeply religious person. But I was a pretty lousy fellow, you know, lacking virtue and carrying on sort of the wild life. When I got to college— I remember the question, this again? Like, I'd, I'd done all the wild crazy in high school, and here was just more wild and crazy. I thought, uh -huh. ah, there's got to be more to my existence than just, you mm, know, yeah. drinking booze and chasing girls. Um, and uh, I thought, well, maybe maybe Jesus has something to do with that, you know? Beautiful. Before, he'd, he'd been sort of, to me, like gravity, something that I believed in but sort of took for granted as the furniture of the universe, yeah, you know, but yeah. not something that was going to be a living presence in my daily decision-making. And that prompted me to a deeper investigation that led me ultimately— into the Catholic Church. And we couldn't be happier. I remember very quickly here, uh, when we lived in Los Angeles, uh, we had a, our, our son was very young. We were looking around for a babysitter, somebody that we could trust. A fellow recommended this one woman, her name was Tilly. And when we went to her home to talk, to talk with her, uh, here's a statue here and a rosary there. And, uh, you know, we left thinking, well, she's very nice, but she really takes this Catholic jazz really far. She takes that really seriously, yeah. But that was the first step in our own 
conversion within the faith. There you go. Fantastic. And we we, we still pray for Tilly every day. Here's a quick email from uh, Uriah. He says, uh, I wanted to start by expressing my deep gratitude for your ministry, which was directly responsible for my entrance into the church and the beginnings of a life reformed by Christ. Thank you. I'm familiar with the acts of penance performed by priests and monks by the request of lay faithful that lead to the concept of indulgences. My question is, are we, as lay Catholics, able to request additional penance from a priest on behalf of loved ones, both living or deceased? respectfully, Uriah. Yeah, so that's not a common Catholic practice. Uh, and if, if, you know, if, you're, if your desire is to do penance for, on behalf of, a, of another person, you don't really need to ask the priest's uh, permission to do it or to have him uh, assign that to you. You could, I mean, in spiritual direction, you could. It's, yeah. it's useful to... You're going to make major decisions in your spiritual life to submit them to the judgment of somebody else, like a spiritual director, but uh, but you don't have to. I mean, you know, you could fast from lunch, for example, and offer that fast for someone else's intention. That that's you don't have to have a priest tell you to do that. And if it's a matter of obtaining an indulgence, an actual indulgence, well, the, the church. I mean, there's a book of indulgences that tells you literally here are all the things you can do in the Catholic Church to gain an indulgence and apply to somebody else. So, you you don't need to make one up yourself. There you go. Uriah, thanks for your email and for your kind words about the show. We'll close with this one from Dick in Dover, Ohio. If I want to ask a favor of God, is it a necessity to complete my question with the words, in Jesus' name? Nope. Don't have to do that. Nope. Prayer is not magic. It's not magic. No, in magic, you know, in classical superstitious magic, there's some precise... A rite or formula that one pronounces, uh, you know, according to some strict rubric and usually some arcane language, expelleriamus, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be. And uh, and if you you know wave your wand the right way and pronounce the word with the right intention, um, wingardium leviosa from Harry Potter, <laughs> then you get the then you get the desired effect. Prayer is not like that at all. Prayer is relationship. I mean, it's like asking the question: If I want my you know my mother to give me an extra slice of pizza, do I have to? Use the right intonation and the right. Well, my mother probably actually, you know, with many people's mothers. My mother it always had to be grammatically correct. Everything else was variable, but if I used bad grammar, I was going to be corrected. That's hilarious. Yeah. All right, and uh, thank you so much for that question. A lot of uh, questions we answered today, uh, primarily email, but an awful lot of phone calls as well, and even some questions via YouTube and Facebook. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern each and every weekday. You can check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com, click on uh, radio, and then once you're on the radio homepage, then you want to look for the words Podcast Central. Click on that, scroll down to Call to Communion, and you are off to the races. On behalf of our fantastic team today, Charles, Matt, and Ace, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Thursday edition of Call to Communion. Until then, have a wonderful day, and stay warm, by the way. God bless. God bless.